So in the previous episode, we gave a brief overview of the history of Christian epistemology and how at different phases in history, different groups of Christians assigned authority differently and placed their trust in different sources of truth. Um, we could probably create a graph of how this works. So if we if we wrote down all the different truth sources side by side, so we have scripture, we have early tradition, we have later tradition, we have uh, philosophy, we have science, we have culture, we have human experience or Christian experience, um, even things like dreams and visions and prophets uh, or the Holy Spirit speaking directly to us. All these different things Christians have uh, considered to have some some sort of authority in theological development. However, during the the first period of time, in other words, between maybe two three hundred A.D. all the way to the Protestant Reformation, we mentioned in the previous episode that Christians gave the highest authority to the church. So one of these different sources of authority is the church, and the church was considered sort of like the arbiter that decided. If there was any kind of conflict between these different truth sources or some misunderstanding, the church was the final decider as to what the correct theology needs to be. Then we talked about how the Protestant Reformation shifted this authority from the church. So if you have all these truth sources side by side and the church is slightly higher, now you put the church back down to, to alongside the others and you move scripture to be higher than the others. So after the Enlightenment, um, again, there's a shift. Scripture goes back down, and now reason and science go up. And they're, they're the ones that determine um, what, how we, we develop theology and what we do with all the other truth sources. Uh, then after this, we have the, the new Orthodox shift. And new Orthodoxy kept... Um, reason and science kind of above everything else, but they also raised uh, the idea of Christ himself. So Christ as a revelation to humanity. Uh, so they, you know, it, it gave authority, New Orthodoxy gave authority to, to scripture and tradition and some of the other sources. Uh, to some degree, it gave that authority back to them to some degree, but not in their fullness, but only in as much as they, they helped us to better understand Christ. So now again, so we have the shift where reason and science are high, and uh, Christ again is kind of lifted up, lifted up above some of the other truth sources. Um, and then we talked about the fundamentalist movement, which was somewhat simultaneous with the New Orthodox movement. And here, fundamentalism sort of rejects all truth sources and puts scripture where, way above everything else. So these are kind of the main trends, but I want to come back to, to something that happened during the Protestant Reformation and to get uh, even a little bit even more detailed into, into some of the shifts that took place. So when the Protestant Reformation started, uh, slogans like Sola Scriptura became popular. But if we look at Protestant history, we realize that in fact, 
what Protestants meant when they said sola scriptura is not what we would normally think of the phrase. So we tend to think sola scriptura should mean that we need to build theology on the Bible and the Bible only and everything else should be kind of like, you know, reduced in authority. But that's not what the majority of Protestants, uh, also known as the magisterial reformers, in contrast with the radical reformers that I'll come back to in a minute, that's not exactly what they meant when they developed their theology. If They actually began trying to, to build theology on the Bible, but then they ran into problems because all of a sudden everybody picked up a Bible and everybody started reading it. Uh, you know, that that's around the time when the printing press became available, so uh, copies of the Bibles were being spread everywhere. And suddenly you have every every random Joe who has never been trained in theology in any way, coming up with all kinds of, you know, personal and weird interpretations. Uh, and one of the major things that took place was that um, the the peasants at that time started what is known as the peasant revolt. So a lot of, uh, during this during this era, uh, it was sort of like a feudal system where you had the nobles and they had land, and the peasants came and worked their land and took a part of the uh, of their um, harvest and so on, and the rest belonged to the the nobles and all this stuff. So, as people started reading the Bibles, they they've start they started using it uh, in in order to um, sort of uh, create a. Uh, an intellectual basis for revolting against the nobles and so on. And uh, Luther became concerned because now this was starting to create a wedge between him and all the nobles that had been supporting him up to this point. And one of the reasons Luther was a lot more successful in his um, revolt against the Catholic Church is because he had a lot of political support. He had very influential people backing him up. But the peasant revolt was using Luther's concept of the priesthood of all believers and sola scriptura uh, as an excuse to revolt against the nobles. So now this was creating a problem. So Luther uh, spoke against the revolt and against the peasants and in fact is possibly responsible for getting many tens of thousands of them killed. And as this was happening, Luther started recognizing the need to qualify the phrase sola scriptura. So he he came up with a with a way to guide scriptural interpretation by saying that scripture has to be read through the lens of early Christian tradition. Now, if anybody wants to to read up on this again, I recommend books like uh, um, History of the Reformation, I think it's called, by Alistair McGrath uh, and The Dangerous Idea and several other popular books right now. Um, If anybody wants to study the Reformation, get one of the latest books published, find find what the latest books are that are published and, and study those because a lot of new research has come up over the past few decades. So, um, I know for a fact that in Alistair McGrath's book, I think it's, uh, History of the Reformation, I don't remember the title exactly now, but he talks a lot about how Luther shifted his view from a purely sola scriptura theology to a a theology that's based on scripture, but um, passed through the lens of early tradition. And by early tradition, Luther was referring like to the very first few hundred years after Christ, going maybe all the way to the time of Augustine, because Luther was a big fan of Augustine. 
So um, whenever they said Sola Scriptura, they didn't mean exactly only Scripture. They meant Scripture with early tradition. Now, this perspective was taken up by people like Calvin, and Calvin was the first to develop a full-fledged systematic theology. And this became something that uh, much of the Reformation depended on, and, and Calvin's systematic theology was also built on the same epistemology, so to speak. In other words, their truth sources were not just Scripture, but Scripture plus early tradition. Uh, essentially the writings of the church fathers up to the time of Augustine. And the idea was simply this, that these people were the closest to the time of Christ, so their version of Christianity uh, was most likely to be correct, so we're better off reading the scripture through their eyes rather than reading it through our modern eyes, so to speak, because we don't have access to that culture anymore. So this is kind of the... Uh, the 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 trend that the direction in which things went with the with the reformation now at the same time as this was happening i was, i mentioned that there was also a radical reformation uh, of many different groups but some of the more more popular ones were the anabaptists the radical reformers rejected that premise they rejected the idea that it is safe to interpret scripture through the lens of the early christian fathers they said that if we want to build a theology on Scripture, we have to build it on the Scripture alone. Um, but, but this movement actually ended up running into some issues that were the result of their own theology. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's just the way things happen. So one of the things their theology led them to believe, by going straight to the Bible instead of going through tradition, is this idea of separation of church and state. All the other reformers were creating um, political bonds with with nobles, with the different uh, governments, uh, just in order to be able to have a chance against the Catholic Church. And the possibility is fairly high that if they had not built these uh, alliances with the state, that the Reformation would have been uh, pretty much destroyed by the Catholic Church like other previous attempts by other reformers. So, in a sense, yes, uh, their reading of Scripture and their theology uh, led them to to do certain things which might not be, in fact, biblical, but which allowed the Reformation to take place. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, because they rejected this connection of church and state, did not have state support. So, they ended up being persecuted, not just by the Catholic Church, but by other reformers as well. And one of the main reasons why they were being persecuted by other reformers is another uh, theological concept they arrived at as a result of their their view of sola scriptura, which is baptism by immersion uh, and baptism um, of of an adult. In other words, a, a believer's baptism. So in, in the Anabaptist study of scripture, they came to the realization that baptism in scripture is something somebody, uh, in fact, I'm not, uh, I, I might be mistaken about the immersion part, but the the main idea is the the idea of baptism for believers. So, uh, in their study of scripture, they realize that a person needs to make a decision to accept Christ, and only after that be baptized. While everybody else, from Catholics to to magisterial reformers, they saw baptism as something that needed to be done uh, with with newborns so that people were 
uh, automatically Christian as opposed to being Christian by choice. Now, one of the reasons the magisterial reformers were very much against this idea of, uh, of a second baptism, which is what they called it, is because what they were trying to accomplish was to create sort of a, 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 an utopia, an ideal state. They, they, this, they were trying to, to run the state according to Protestant principles um, in order to show the world that Protestantism was better than Catholicism. But when the Anabaptists came on the scene and introduced this idea of a believer's baptism, then all of a sudden it was giving people a choice. So um, now the people within, within those regions where they were trying to create an ideal state, uh, if they had bought into this idea of a choice, then they might have chosen not to live according to Christian standards and you would have destroyed their experiment. So you, you have some of the first martyrdoms of Anabaptists being done by people like Zwingli and other major reformers that had actually contributed quite a bit to the Protestant Reformation. So um, the Anabaptists, they are the ones that in fact pioneered the idea of sola scriptura um, in the way we would actually think it would make sense to do it. So, in other words, to, to really build theology on the Bible alone. But the problem they had was that because of the theology they gathered from Sala Scriptura, they were constantly under persecution, they were constantly on the move, um, they didn't have the support and the protection of the state, and it's very hard to do in-depth theology when you're on the run, when you're hiding, when uh, all the intellectual leaders of the movement are being, you know, persecuted and, and uh, people are trying to capture them just to, to prevent the movement from spreading. So this prevented the Anabaptists from really having the chance and the opportunity to develop a purely sola scriptura theology as they were trying to do to develop it systematically, to think through the logic of how it would work. So, um, the other reformers even rejected the possibility that sola scriptura can actually be done. Uh, they, they, in, they felt that they needed to use tradition as an interpreter of scripture because otherwise scripture could be interpreted in, in 10,000 different ways. But the one problem that the reformers, the magisterial reformers, were not taking into consideration is that by depending on tradition, um, tradition itself could have been tainted. And in fact, as a result of modern historical research, we know that it was tainted by Greek philosophy. So we have the situation where tradition, whether affected by Platonic or Neoplatonic philosophy, or later tradition affected by Aristotelian philosophy, we are putting a lot of trust in the ability of Greeks to come up with ways to interpret scripture. So then it's not really sola scriptura, it's more like scriptures as seen through a Greek lens. And that is problematic because we have no guarantee that the Greeks knew what they were talking about. And in fact, through, moder through modernize, um, you know, if, if Plato came up with this stuff today or Aristotle, we would probably dismiss a lot of it right off hand as being nonsensical. But back then, uh, many people in that era thought that there was no other way to look at reality except through those eyes. So, 
We have the situation in Christian theology today where um, almost all the traditional uh, Protestant churches are built on an epistemology that is actually scripture through the lens of early tradition and not sola scriptura. The And then there's the the Anabaptist, the radical DNA, so to speak, the radical uh, line going back historically that was attempting to develop a sola scriptura theology, but he never quite accomplished that. And the reason I'm going through this whole history is because I believe Adventism as a theology, the Seventh-day Adventist theology, is an attempt to do and accomplish what the Anabaptists failed to accomplish. Now, I understand that somebody listening to this will say, no, you guys completely failed in doing that, and that's fine. But what I'm trying to do now is locate Adventism within the wider sphere of Christian theology. And Adventist theology is not a descendant of the magisterial reformers, in the sense that we're also trying to develop theology based on scripture plus early tradition. We're descendants of the Anabaptist line that's trying to develop theology on scripture alone. And what we've tried to do is to think through the process of what would have to be true if, in fact, scripture was the primary source that God used to communicate to humanity through. So, again, going back to previous episodes, we don't know ahead of time how God chose to communicate with humanity. It could be that the liberal Christianity is right and that he chose to communicate through science and reason. It could be that the Protestants are right, that he chose to communicate through scripture and early tradition. Or the Catholics, that he chose to communicate through the church. Or the Anabaptists, that he chose to communicate through scripture alone. These are different hypotheses, and we don't know a priori or ahead ahead of this, we don't know ahead of time, which of these hypotheses is correct, we need to allow each one to develop into a coherent system of thought and then evaluate the systems of thought, see if they make sense and see how they fit reality. So um, before we start diving into uh, a little bit of how Adventist theology works, we have to kind of establish this map of different versions of Christian theology and pinpoint where exactly Adventism fits. We belong to the Anabaptist line. Now, there's still Anabaptists today. There's still other people that are coming from this line. But the one question we have to answer is, have they succeeded succeeded in developing a fully sola scriptura theology? And what does that look like? What What are the principles that that would be behind the sola scriptura theology and the problem is that people who don't follow a sola scriptura theology cannot just dismiss um, somebody else's point of view just because it doesn't match up with their particular theology so for example a lot of evangelicals like to critique Adventist theology because it doesn't quite line up with their point of view but they're not even trying to do Sola Scriptura theology. They might call it Sola Scriptura, but it's actually Scripture and early tradition. So, in order to critique Adventist theology, some someone has to first step outside the box of the magisterial reformers and the, the box that they have created for theology 
and step into a different box that is truly scripture only and evaluate that independently and see if it makes sense and if it adds up. Now, this doesn't mean that one is better than the other, but no one can really critique a theology that has a different basis by using their own theological framework to critique it. They need to critique it on its own merits. So, um, that again is kind of um, me trying to create a map of Christianity and show where everything fits and how Adventism comes into play. Now, over the next few episodes, we're going to try to discuss what sola scriptura theology would look like and what the implications would be of doing theology that way and uh, what what would be a, a reasonable process to follow to, to do, arrive theology, at theology that way. And then we'll contrast that with, with uh, Adventist theology and how everything fits in there. All right, um, there might be a few days before I do another podcast, but uh, that should uh, hopefully be okay for the listener.